Have you ever been persecuted for your faith? You know, if you look up persecution, there's a couple different definitions. Persecution, hostility and ill treatment is one definition. Persistent annoyance or harassment. I don't know about you, but when I think of persecution, I often think of death. But you know, it's, it's, there's all kinds of different forms of persecution, aren't there? Where we can be harassed, where we can be ill-treated. And it's just kind of that constant dripping, if you will. Maybe you've been persecuted at work. Maybe you've been persecuted in your church. Or even in your own family or your own home. I'm going to ask Pastor Hyman to come up here. We were talking just this week about this very subject, and he was telling me about some persecution that went on in uh, his dad's family. Tell us about that. Yes, sir. Um, my, my dad uh, was not raised a Seventh-day Adventist, and uh, he grew up working on a construction uh, job site. His dad was a general contractor. Uh, actually, his dad had served in World War II, as an officer in the Army Corps of Engineers in Africa and was a strict disciplinarian. And yes, my yes. dad, uh, yes indeed, when my dad um, came into contact by way of some literature of the Seventh-day Adventist message and became interested in studying it, uh, there was no, no bones about it. If he continued to study and, and follow these ideas, he was going to be kicked out of the family, kicked out of the house at least. And uh, so my dad, who inherited some of that stubbornness, for the truth, that, that is, he, uh, when he studied and was convicted this was the truth, uh, he and his dad had to part ways. And so he wound up having to go to school. Uh, he decided to go to Southern uh, and had to pay his own way through. And it was interesting because he studied to take theology because he was so impressed by the message that um, he discovered in the Bible and the spirit of prophecy that he became a, a minister and uh, pastored for many years here in the Carolina Conference. Wow, so persecution from his own father, if you will, of saying, if you're going to choose this message, you're going to be out of the house. It was one or the other. Wow, wow. Did he ever do but, that to you? No, I never, he never, I never did had that, to that you. Uh, type of persecution. <laughs> I will just add, though, many, many years later, his dad eventually, by, of course, the influence of his son, uh, wound up accepting the Seventh-day Adventist message and there's a church down in South Carolina, the church at Union, South Carolina. It's a small town. He helped build that church in the early 90s before he passed away, my grandfather. Praise the Lord. So uh, you can still see it Praise today. Praise the Lord. Now, before you're done, though, you have another story going to the other side, Teresa's side of the family. Yes. Uh, we have an odd thing. You and I, both of us, have in-laws named Ted Nancy. Is that right? That is correct. Tell us the story about Ted. Your in-laws are a little better known than mine are. Well, but I don't know. Maybe not. Uh, my my uh, father-in-law, uh, he himself was not initially raised as an Adventist. Uh, he grew up in East Tennessee in Knox County and uh, was raised in a Baptist family. But his dad, I, don't wanna, I have to say this carefully so I don't get confused myself, my father's father named Wesley, uh, he began studying his Bible diligently and started to understand the, the understanding of the Sabbath on his own, just without any other outside information, and came to the conclusion that Saturday was the Sabbath. And he began to teach this and to share this at the Baptist church, hmm. which I should mention was actually the church and the land was donated by his family. My wife's maiden name is Jones, and the name of the church is Jones Chapel Baptist Church. Hmm. Now this cre created quite a stir as he um, became so convinced that this was true and began telling people that this Saturday is the Sabbath, 
they, they said, you can't, stop, you can't do this anymore. You're going to have to stop doing this. This is actually a picture of the, the church. Um, and my, my f- grandfather-in-law is the f- on the far side, on the front row on the right, sitting down. Uh, that's my wife's grandfather, uh, the one who had studied and became convinced that Saturday was the Sabbath. And anyway, they had a church meeting and said, you're gonna be, uh, we're going we're gonna to vote you guys out of here. And uh, he had, I'm sorry, I need to point out, this is my wife's grandmother. They were not married at the time. The lady with her, her head's covered with the, the hat right there. And uh, anyway, they got married shortly after this picture in 1914. So this has got to be 1912 or so. 12 or 1913. This, this is Jones Chapel uh, Baptist Church. And so they donated the land. Donated the they land. They helped construct this Three church. acres. They have a the church, church meeting. They named the church after the family. And then they, the family uh, was... They, they voted. They had other family members there that were Joneses. They voted. My, my, my father-in-law can remember this. He was about five or six. Hmm. And he said, uh, they had a meeting and said, you know, if you're going to continue to do this, your family is going to be out of here. And uh, he wouldn't back down. He was convinced that Saturday was the Sabbath with no, no, in, no contact with Adventists yet at all, none at all. Hmm. And so he remembers uh, being asked to leave and his brother, my father-in-law's brother, crying and saying, my daddy's a good man, my daddy's a good man, why are they doing this to us, and having mm. us, you know, kicking us out. And so my f- grandfather-in-law, he prayed and said, Lord, help, you know, if this is really true, help me to know that. Short time later, a, a call porter came by and knocked on the door, was selling literature, and sold him the book uh, Daniel and Revelation by Uriah Smith. And he read that book and was just amazed by it, and he found out who published this, who published this, Seventh-day Adventist. Well, anyway, that's when he began to connect and find a church in Knox, Knoxville area that was Seventh-day Adventist church, and they began attending, and anyway, the rest is history. Was, they just, wow. uh, about six, seven years ago, they finally, the, this church, they, they sold it, but they called and asked my wife's grandmother, who was still alive at the age of 112, they asked her for permission to change the name of the church from Jones Chapel. It still remained that name for many, many years. Mm. And uh, anyway, so they, I don't know what they changed it to, so it's, it's not there anymore. Wow. But well, thank you for sharing. I appreciate that. You know, we don't hear stories. Maybe we do. But it seems like in this country, I'm convinced we don't know much about sacrifice and much about persecution. These stories, by the way, were not uncommon in any way, shape, or form for our founders. You might recall the Harmon family. We're part of the Chestnut Street Methodist Church, and similar thing. They believed in William Miller's teaching and the second coming of Jesus, and they, in in so many respects, were put on trial. They had passages and Bible uh, verses that they wanted to share, and they weren't allowed to share, and they were put away as quietly as possible without much of any explanation. You've broken the rules. You can no longer be a Methodist, and so um, you can read about it in a variety of places, but all seven members of Ellen White's family, the Harmon family, were discontinued from the church, persecuted, if you will, from your own church family. Um, Friends, following Jesus by no means is easy. I think that's why Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And so we're doing this series that we're just simply calling Sacrifice. Um, We've looked last week, we talked about the character of sacrifice. We talked about Abraham and Isaac and what some of those things looked like, how he was to sacrifice what was nearest and dearest to him. 
as a test. Today we're looking at sacrifice of relationships. Next week we'll look at physical sacrifice. The sacrifice of the Son in a few weeks when we have communion. The sacrifice of self-reliance we'll also look at in upcoming weeks. Sacrifice of means and pleasures, of pride, and how sacrifice is required. And then we're going to conclude how sacrifice is needed for the spread of the gospel. And so that's what we're looking through. But our theme verse, whoever seeks to keep his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will preserve it. Here's an interesting quote from our high calling. It says, we shall know the means of true happiness. Does anybody here want true happiness? I know I do. We shall know the means of true happiness only as we keep the fire burning on the altar of sacrifice. What does that mean? We'll only know true, sacri- or true happiness as we keep the fire burning on the altar of sacrifice. And so the title of today's sermon, The Reproach of Those Closest. I would say everyone here has felt the reproach, the cold shoulder, the brush off, the jokes, the teasing, the pinpricks. And for some, it's meant some more major clashes. Not just clashes of music, but clashes in keeping the Sabbath, in going to church. Clashes of others weighing in on how you need to raise your children. The occasions that you are cited as holier than thou. That you are judging them. That you're a hypocrite. I mean, who are you fooling anyway? You may be fooling your church, but you're not fooling me. I know you better than anybody. That can be hard to endure. But I believe, as always, Jesus understands. And so if you brought your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 3. And we're going to look at a few verses here this morning. Mark chapter 3, beginning verse 20. Mark chapter 3, verse 20, and there we read, Then the multitude came together again, so they could not so much as eat bread. Here Jesus is so popular, the multitude is, is crowding him constantly, all the time, that they can't even take a break to eat. Teachers, do you know what I'm talking about? I mean, you, you can't even hardly fit in time to go to the bathroom. But verse 21, but when his own people, which we really, I believe, in, in, in other translations even, it says his own family, I believe this to be his mothers and his, or his mother and his brothers, excuse me, when his own people or own family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, he's out of his mind. Thanks a lot. Appreciate that. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he is Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. And so they're saying many things here. His own family is saying, first of all, Jesus is extremely intemperate. He is disrespectful to church leadership. He's a rebel. He's making all kinds of bold statements. And he's indignant. He's just denouncing the scribes and the Pharisees. And, well, he's losing his mind, quite frankly. He's not all there. We don't know what happened to Jesus, but he's lost it. 
And so we have to try and save face. We have to try and save the family name as older stepbrothers. We are going to intervene on behalf of Jesus. Not to mention the embarrassment of the fact that now he's called demonic, casting out demons by demons. Who does he think he is? Keep your finger there and turn over to John chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. Another instance where the brothers take opportunity to mock their younger brother, stepbrother, Jesus. John chapter 7, verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea. Because the Jews sought to kill him. They were angry with him, so he stayed out of Judea. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Hey, Jesus, why don't you depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing? For no one who does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. If you really are who you claim to be, Go to the religious center of this place, of this country, and show yourself. Prove yourself. Why are you running? Are you a coward, Jesus? And his brothers seek to mock him publicly. Now, it's never fun to be persecuted. It's never fun to be mocked or ridiculed or made light of. It's one thing when it happens at work or some other place, and you have a place to retreat to. It's quite another when you feel like your own family is hanging you out to dry, doesn't care, completely insensitive, in fact, even leading the charge at times. And nobody seems to understand. This is Desire of Ages, page 111. He who had proclaimed the law upon Mount Sinai would be condemned as a transgressor. Isn't that ironic? He who had come to break the power of Satan would be denounced as Beelzebub. Just flipped over, upside down. Nobody understood. Here's a few more. This is a... Uh, well, we're still at 111. Let's finish. No one upon earth had understanding... Sorry, had understood him, and during his ministry, he must still walk alone. Does anybody like to walk alone? To feel that nobody understands you? Maybe you felt that at times. Jesus felt that. At times, or perhaps even all the time. Throughout his life, his mother and his brothers did not comprehend his mission. Even his disciples did not understand him. He walked alone. This is page 88 now in Desire of Ages. Jesus was misunderstood by his brothers because he was not like them. His standard was not their standard. Misunderstood. Different standard. It's hard to really mesh with people who have vastly different standards than you, isn't it? There's going to be a rub. There's going to be an issue. The example of Jesus was to them a continual irritation, a dripping, an annoyance. Many avoided him 
because they were rebuked by his stainless life. Let's not hang out with Jesus. He always makes me feel bad. Why? Did he say something? No. I just, I don't know. I think he's narrow and straight-laced. Let's just go find somebody else to hang out with. Throughout childhood, youth, and manhood, Jesus walked alone. I believe at times you can do everything in your power not to offend, not to irritate, certainly to not rebuke, but out of nowhere you can find your family mocking you, riding you, making you feel as if you've done some horrible thing. And you may be surrounded by family at the beach or over Labor Day or Thanksgiving or Christmas or whatever. You may be with your husband who you're with all the time, but at times you just feel very much alone. Jesus knows that feeling. Just your presence for some reason agitates, 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 and you're trying your best to not say a word. But they get frustrated at you. I imagine Jesus knows what's that lo- what that is like. And so going back to Mark chapter 3, Verse 31 now. Mark chapter 3, verse 31. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they sent him, sent to him, and calling him. I imagine the brothers to be the instigator here. I believe Mary fully trusted him. In fact, we see that in that very first miracle. And Spirit of Prophecy confirms that it was the older brother's idea, and they wanted to get Jesus, and Mary was the means to that end. And so Mary comes along, but it's the brothers that are instigating this. And they're standing outside in verse 32, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brother's? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What is Jesus saying here? As I said before, clearly Mary trusts him at the wedding feast. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. And we also have many examples of where Jesus talks about respecting, children respecting and honoring their parents. So what is Jesus saying? What we see here is Jesus speaking to those closest and dearest and saying it's not your place, even family, even mother, even brothers, it's not your place to interfere with God's work, to direct his divine calling. And how it should be carried out is not your place. No disrespect, but it's not your place. Let me say it another way. The ties that bind Christ to the Heavenly Father are stronger and truer than blood ties. That's saying it another way. Does that make sense? So they're saying, your mother, your brothers are here, they're looking for you. And he says, I'm going to be about my father's business, not their business. 
And as much as I love them, as much as I respect them, I'm going to do what God asks me to do. I'm going to follow his will, his plan, his way. But quite frankly, family and close friends don't always want to hear that, do they? You mean God comes ahead of us? You feel that your connection with him is closer than mine is? And you feel alone. And you feel persecuted. Here in Matthew 10, 34, it says, Do not think I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. What does that mean? I mean, the gospel, yes, is a message of peace. And Christianity is a system which, when it's received and obeyed, would spread peace and harmony and happiness throughout the earth. I believe the message of Christ unites all in a close bond who accept its teachings. But I believe that's why Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. But to those around us, the will of God and the written word, oftentimes, for those around us, it's at variance with their habits and with their desires. And so they rise up in rebellion against it. And it becomes a sword. They hate the purity that reveals and condemns their sins, and they persecute and destroy those who live according to God's word, and they'll do it with a snicker. They'll do it with a, a remark, a sarcastic comment. And it's the stirring of hatred and strife. This is the sword, and it divides. It divides family, it divides close friends, and it can be ruthless at times. But at times, I believe, Jesus uses the sword, if you will, to arrest people's attention and point them to Christ. If somebody's being agitated with you, because you're doing the right thing and you didn't mouth off, you didn't do anything that you regret or say anything you shouldn't have said, but if they're agitated, I would submit to you the Holy Spirit is working. Don't shortchange it, don't run ahead, just let it work. Mr. Chen was from northeastern China. He was in the Red Army. And he was a staunch atheist. And when he was gone one time for war, for a long extended period of time, there was a great revival in China that swept through the Adventist church. In two years, 3,000 people were baptized in his home city alone into the Adventist church. And so when he came back, his father and his mother and his brothers all had been baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist faith. You better believe Mr. Chin was angry. Not in my house. Absolutely not. And so his wife would try and come to church. And he would go to church with her to disrupt, to annoy, to badger, to make noise, to throw rocks through windows. He became very well-known personality at that local Seventh-day Adventist church. How can my family accept this foolishness, these fables? I need to straighten them out. And he would threaten his wife. Yet all this time, she just quietly served the Lord, 
observed her faith, read her Bible. Until one day, his wife developed a very serious eye infection. And the infection was so bad, they had to go to the, the doctor, and the doctor says, we're going to have to do surgery. And so they operated, and then she came out of surgery with a patch on one eye, and the doctor feared, if you do any reading at all, you jeopardize losing sight in the other eye, and you'll be completely blind. But she fed on God's Word. She needed God's Word for strength to get through this challenging ordeal she was going through. And so, with a patch on one eye, she would read the Bible. And Mr. Chen, her husband, would come in and pull the Bible out of her hand. What are you doing with that Bible? Don't you remember what the doctor told you? You could lose your sight altogether. You could be blind. That's not worth any book. Put it away. Throw it across the room. Then after he stormed out, she'd quietly go pick it up, and she'd read some more. And this happened day after day. Until finally, Mr. Chen, that staunch atheist, said, Fine. If you just have to read that book so much, I'll read it to you. Where do you want me to read? She said, Turn to the book of Job. So he started looking through the book of Job and reading portions and the trials that Job went through, but how he continued to trust in the Lord. Got to the verse that says, Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. And he started to read more and more, and, and it got to the point where his wife would be in a doctor's appointment, and he would pull her Bible out of her bag and secretly read, read it while he was waiting for her to come out. Then she'd come out and he'd slip it back in the bag. Until one day he confessed that the Bible, God's word, had transformed his life. And he gave his life to Jesus. And today, you want to talk about ironies, today he's a Seventh-day Adventist pastor in the same church that used to throw rocks through the windows. That's the God we serve. So if your commitment to Jesus makes people upset at times, take heart. God is working. Not that you're there to agitate, but sometimes your very presence can't help but do just that. In fact, even Jesus' own brothers, if we fast forward to Acts chapter 1, verse 14, it says, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. We know that part. With the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Do you see that? Are they still mocking? Are they still doubting? Are they still in his face? Or did something happen? As Jesus continued to quietly live the life that God called him to live. Now sometimes that happens. So keep praying for that. But even in the very trying times, be of good courage. Another verse, well, it's actually in great controversy. It talks about how ever since the time of Christ, people have been persecuted for loving God. It's always happened. It's on great controversy, page 46. Read the whole page. You'll be blessed by something else. A holy God-filled life will forever be a rebuke to the sinner. No words, no comments, no Bible verses, just your presence 
how you live your life. And because of their sinful life, just being in your presence is a rebuke to them. And it's always been that way. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because Abel was getting awfully preachy. Because Abel was a Bible thumper. No, because his sacrifice was accepted. How about that? He quietly followed the commands of God. And Cain's could have been accepted too. But he didn't want to do it God's way. He wanted to do it his way. And he got angry by the quiet little Abel over there whose sacrifice was accepted. It was the same reason the Jews rejected Christ. It was the same reason that so many martyrs in history have died because purity and holiness of character is a constant rebuke to others' selfishness and corruption. Now I have to ask, is that only how other people treat us or is it at times how we respond to others? Yeah, maybe we don't chew them out, but we get catty or sassy, make snide remarks, Give a passing look. Say loudly to our kids, come on kids, we're not going to participate in that. Pinpricks. We spite people. We can be professionals, I believe, at sending the message loud and clear, I don't like how you're doing things. Persecution in the family. It exists. From the days of Christ until now, his faithful disciples have excited the hatred and opposition of those who love and follow the ways of sin. It's nothing new. Here's a verse in Luke 21, verse 12. They will lay your, their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Wow, this gets really serious. This does involve some real sacrifice, not just feeling uncomfortable over the holidays. But the question is, who has the last word in spiritual matters in your life? Your family? Your close friends? Or God and God's word alone? Now, again, I'm not telling you to be in, in anybody's face about anything. I'm just telling you to quietly maintain what you know God has called you to do. Desire of Ages 3.26. So pained was Christ by the misapprehension in his own home that it was a relief to him to go where it did not exist. Isn't that sad? It was a relief to get out of the house, a relief to go somewhere else, because even in my own home, they don't get it. They don't understand me. For some of you, the hardest place to be a Christian is in your own home. Did I say some? I would say for all of us. At times, that's the hardest place. There was one home that he loved to visit, the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha. For in the atmosphere of faith, and love, his spirit, had rest. So there was one place that was a bit of a respite for him, and he liked to go there as often as he could, but it says, yet there was none on earth who could comprehend his divine mission or know the burden which he bore in behalf of humanity. 
often he could find relief only in being alone and communing with his heavenly Father. That was his only relief, being alone with his heavenly Father because the family didn't understand. I don't know about you, but if you have a big family, when everybody gets together, this is one of the hardest things to do is to find some alone time. You study your Bible on the John if you have to, but you make it happen. Get a dog just so you can take him for a long walk. Stop and sit on a log. Pray. Read some verses and say, help me, Lord, I'm going back in. You're going to think I hate my family. I'm blessed with a wonderful family. I really am. And maybe this doesn't describe your home. Praise the Lord. Count your blessings. But for many here, I believe it does. Because your family doesn't get it. They don't understand. You feel more at home, perhaps, with like believers. Maybe right here you feel more at home. You can be yourself, you can be accepted, you can be refreshed. Maybe there's a place like Mary and Martha and Lazarus' home that you like to go. And if so, that's wonderful too. But the bottom line, as we talk about sacrifice, the bottom line is that real comfort, real relief, real joy, real peace, real assurance, and real understanding for true support, it will only be found in the communion with your Heavenly Father, period. And as much as I wish and could promise you you'd have a wonderful, supportive, healthy family, I can't promise you that. But I can promise you God will be those things for you. He'll be everything that your earthly father may not be. He's the only one you can trust. He's the only one you can count on. And he will not let you down. So when it push comes to shove, if you're going to sacrifice something, sacrifice that close relationship, sacrifice the family, but don't sacrifice your relationship with God, period. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It's not worth it. And it can be really tough, especially when the appearance is that everyone else has it all together. Everyone else has both, and I don't. Wah. But what does God promise in his word? Matthew 5, verse 10, in the Beatitudes. Blessed are those who are persecuted for what? For righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. They don't even have anything true to say. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is nothing new. Mark 10, 29, assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. No one has left all of those things for my sake and that of the gospels who shall not receive, how much more? A hundredfold now in this time in the age to come, eternal life. And you say, I just can't do that. Friends, when push comes to shove, if one has to come above the other, you have to sacrifice the earthly relationship. That doesn't mean you're disrespectful. That doesn't mean you cut off ties. It doesn't mean you never talk. It doesn't mean any of those things. It just means God comes first. And while it feel 
while it may feel like a sacrifice and truly is, it's a reward, says this verse, both now and later. And this is a hard message because it's asking me to put all on the altar, to sacrifice even my good graces with my father and my mother and my sister and my brother, if necessary, that God may be first in my life, period. But if I want to experience the joy Christ has to offer, we have to be willing to sacrifice all. And that's what true sacrifice is. Those things that are nearest and dearest and closest, we have to be willing to put God first. And then we'll know the meaning of true happiness only as we keep the fire burning on the altar of sacrifice. I believe this verse more and more every day. Whoever seeks to save his life, friends, will lose it. Whoever seeks to do it my way, it's not going to work. I know how to find happiness. I know where to find it. Good luck. But whoever loses his life, whoever puts Christ first in everything, it's counterintuitive. It's difficult, it's hard, it doesn't make sense at times. But if I sacrifice everything and lose my life, I will preserve it. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you will help each and every one of us to be willing to sacrifice all for you, to be who you have called us to be, to live the way you've called us to live, And, Lord, that's going to be a sword in many relationships that we have. Lord, give us your Holy Spirit. Guard our mouths and our lips. Help us to be a quiet influence. Help us to allow your Holy Spirit to work and for us not to run ahead. But also help us to be faithful and true to your word when they ask. And, Lord, may we be fully about your business And we pray for all of those in our family, and we pray for ourselves. We don't have it all figured out. We are not perfect in by any means, way, shape, or form. But we want to be faithful to what we're convicted on, and we pray for those in our family as well, that we will be united in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio, and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.